0: Okay, so this morning uh, we want to continue. We've been in a series on what we call fire quenchers, and we're talking about the Holy Spirit and how ways in which we can quench, offend, uh, grieve the Holy Spirit, and of course we don't want to look at things from the negative perspective only because there's more to it than just what we do, you know, that maybe is grievous to the Lord, um, there's also an obligation that we have to learn how to host the presence of God, to learn how to steward the glory of God in our lives because we're all called to that. And I, I said this, I made this statement, and I want to say it again because it's so important. The secret of revival. What is revival? Well, first of all, a revival... Uh, Charles Finney said many years ago, revival presupposes a declension, which in old English translated into modern English means that if something needs revived, it means something's wrong, it's sick, or it's dead. All right? So if you need to revive, resuscitate, um, resurrect someone, what does that mean, right? It's not a good thing. So when we talk about revival, we're seeking after revival, In a sense, we are confessing that we are sick and we are dead. Is that all right? Okay. So, some people say I'm very direct, but the fact is that's what the word says. Okay. So, if we need revival. So, what does that mean? God wants us to live in a constant state of revival. Huh? I mean, how would it be if every week or two, you know, you had to take yourself uh, or call, you know, an ambulance to come and take you to be resuscitated? I mean, because you know you're on the verge of of collapsing. <laughs> that wouldn't be a good thing, right? You wouldn't want to live like that, would you? Constantly having to be resuscitated or revived. You would, that that wouldn't be a very pleasant life at all. So. This is the same way it is spiritually. We're called to live in a constant state of revival, which means life, renewal. Live. We're alive, okay? So we're to be alive in Jesus. We are alive in Christ. We're born again by the Holy Spirit. We're to live in that state of life. In fact, it's something that happens only as we stay connected to him. So revival will occur and only will occur in a person's life, in a church, and even beyond that, to a city and nation where the people have learned how to stay continually connected to the presence of God. That's it. The presence of God produces life. That's what the Word says. But it's not physical life that he's, the Bible speaks of. It's spiritual life. The, the Greek is the word zoe, which means spiritual life. And the, the other word for natural life is bios, or we get our word biology from that. And so it's not a physical or natural life, it's a spiritual life. We have a spirit, we have a soul, and we have a body, but it's our spirit that lives forever. It's our spirit, that part of us. And I know there's there's the connection there, and we can't really separate that our uh, spirit and our soul in many respects, but there's a sense in which we have to recognize that we're spiritual beings. Right? We We are not physical beings that have a spirit. But we are spiritual beings that have a body. Because one day the physical body will be replaced with the spiritual body is what the word says. And we'll be fully spiritual, right? Okay? Because we're going to experience an incorruptible spiritual body. Yes, it's a resurrected body, but it's still spiritual in the sense that even though it, it will resemble in many respects a physical body, we recognize that it's still spiritual. Okay, it's eternal, it's immortal, it's imperishable is what the Bible says. So it's a resurrected body and it's still in that sense that it's fully spiritual but fully physical in that sense as well. Okay, so we are called as God's people to live in a constant state of communion with God that brings us to a place of renewal, revival in our lives so that we reflect, we emanate the very nature and glory of God wherever we go. Last night in our final session in the Freedom Encounter, we read out of Acts chapter 5 and it talks about how Peter had uh, such glory in operating and resident in his life that the presence and the power of God would emanate from him and people would bring multitudes of sick folk, lay them on the street, and they would be healed just by what the Bible calls his shadow. That's amazing. I mean, I encourage you, read that. And we it's, it's especially, uh, the language of the Passion Translation is especially brilliant. It talks about how that Power emanated from Peter, and they people would know when he was going to walk down the street, he was going to be in a particular location, and they would bring out sick people and those who were demonized and lay them on the street. And it says in, in that verse, I believe it's verse number 16 of Acts 5, they were all healed. Everyone was healed. Now, if you read that today, and you for many many of us, okay, I'm not talking about... People who are not spiritually minded, all right? I mean, and I'm talking about the people of God, the people that know Jesus Christ. There's many people who do know Jesus, that do profess to be Christians, who still look at that and think, man, that's sci-fi. That's fiction, right? Right? I mean, how could that happen, that this glory would emanate from a person, that this shadow would just touch someone, not just one or two random people, but multitudes is what it says, and every single one of them was healed or delivered. Wow. That is absolutely mind-boggling, isn't it? Come on now, are you guys awake this morning? All right, don't fall asleep, Okay. We'll get everybody get up. Let's do some exercise, whatever we have to do to keep you awake this morning. All right. So think about that. We were created to stay connected to him so that his life would flow into us and then overflow, spill out of us, emanate from us, and impact the world. The very life of God. The Bible says we have resurrection power on the inside of us. Come on. Just look at your neighbor and say, You have resurrection power on the inside of you. All right. Resurrection power on the inside of you, right? Scriptural precedent, Romans 8, 11. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, is what it says. The very same spirit. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, the early church learned to cultivate this atmosphere of heaven on earth. I mean, they, they did it. That's why Peter's shadow had, had power. Paul in Acts 19, they would take handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his body, lay them on the sick, lay them on the oppressed, and every one of them would be healed. And, you know, there's this place where we today as his body, as his saints, as disciples of Jesus, have a responsibility to learn how to host the glory and the presence of God like this. And I I know that that we might say, well, how do we do that? Well, that's what the series is all about. How do we do that in very practical ways? The first thing, and we looked at this last week, and let me just recap very quickly, is that Jesus... Uh, learned and valued the presence of his father more than anything else. In fact, he lived in a place of constantly abiding in the presence. He never knew what it was like to go a day without living in the presence of God. The only time he was separated from his father was on the cross. When the sins of the world were placed on Jesus, then he was separated from the presence of his Father, and that's what broke his heart. That sin and the separation from the presence of... He didn't die of crucifixion. He died of a broken heart. Because you know the whole thing is that Jesus is on the cross, right? They come to him thinking he's going to be alive, so they break his legs because that will accelerate the death process. It's a terrible thing, crucifixion. The only way they were able to stay alive spikes through the wrists, through the feet, and is they would push themselves up to gasp. They would die of suffocation. and It would take days, sometimes up to a week. And so what do they do? It's a high Sabbath, so they've got to take the criminals down from the cross. So they come to the criminals and they start breaking their legs so they can no longer push themselves up, gasp for air, and keep living. So it accelerates the death process. They come to Jesus, he's already dead. And so they said, just to make sure that he's already dead, they thrust a spear in his side. Because they don't need to break his legs, he's dead, right? And that fulfills the prophecy that says not one of his bones will be broken. So they thrust the spear in his side, and outflows blood and water. When you remember what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweat as it was great drops of blood. And one of the explanations, physiologically, is that Jesus in the garden had actually at that point, because the Bible says, my soul is overwhelmed even with sorrow to the point of death. And then so here he is, and his Pericardium sac on his heart ruptures, bursts open, the body fluid mixes with the blood, and he sweats as it is great drops of blood. So, most likely, he would have died because it really it's impossible to survive that, to not die. But he could not die in the garden. It was not the Father's will. He had to go to the cross. So when you read in one of the synoptic gospels, it says that the Lord sent an angel to minister to him, most likely to preserve him and prevent him from dying so that he could go to the cross. So Jesus separated from the presence of his father, Jesus saying, take this cup from me, not that he didn't want to die because he said, you know, I've come I, I've come to this hour. I've come to this point. And what do I say? Father, deliver me? No, no. For this purpose, I've come. For this is your will. Father, glorify your name. He surrenders his life to the intention of the Father. But it was the separation from the presence of his Father that was just too much for him to bear. That's what killed him. That's why he died. What an incredible thing. Jesus so valued living in the presence of God and his Father. You know, we talked about Moses also, didn't we? And we said when the children of Israel had rebelled against God and the Lord said, enough is enough. I'll take you into the promised land, but I'm not going with y'all. Okay. You guys stay here. Wait. I'm going to organize someone to lead you in. It's going to be an angel, not me. I'm not going. And then Moses, what did he say? Fair enough, God. God. We understand you have every right to be upset with us. Yeah, as long as we get in the promised land, it doesn't matter who takes us. Now, he didn't say that. He said, Lord, it's not. that's not good. We don't want it. If you don't go with us, if your presence doesn't accompany us, don't take us up. In other words, the promise wasn't enough. The promise alone is not enough. I'm, we must have your presence. Many of us today, isn't this the point? It's very profound. Many of us will settle for the promise without the the presence. As long as we have the blessing, as long as we see God's purpose and plan fulfilled in our life, hey, that's all that matters. But what about the presence of God? Moses said, no deal, God. Don't even take us up if you're not going to go with us. We'd rather stay here and die here in the wilderness without your presence, without the fulfillment of the promise, and go in there without you. Just rather stay here. You see, what a desire, what a heart to be able to know and to seek after the very presence of Father. I need this more than anything else. I value His presence more than anything else in my life. When you understand the responsibility. But what it is, then that is one thing. But we have to recognize this. Before we invest in something, we have to esteem it valuable. Is that not true? What we value, we invest in. Is that not true? Right? So what does the Bible say? So what? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what we value, we invest in. If we don't value the presence of God, we won't invest in it. If we don't understand, well, what does that mean? I, look, we should come to the point as Christians where we can't live without His presence. In His presence is fullness of joy. The Bible says, in His, at His right hand, pleasures evermore. The times of refreshing come from His presence. I will send my presence. And my presence will give you rest. In his presence is everything that we need. The Bible says that righteousness, peace, and joy is in his presence. So with how can we live without his presence? We can't. See, we seek after the promise. We seek after the, the, the blessings of God. But in reality, we're supposed to seek after the presence of God. Because when we have the presence, which is the person of God, then we have everything that he possesses. You see, you can't have the, the castle without the king. The reality is God says, I want you to know me. And when you know me, you'll have everything that is mine. Because the Bible says we're heirs of God and we're joint heirs of Jesus. Wow, think about that. Everything that Jesus inherited, he's disseminated and distributed that to us. Everything that Jesus received from the Father... He's disseminated and made available to us. We're not just heirs of God like, you know, God has his favorite son and he'll give most of his possessions to his favorite son and then he'll give the leftover, the smaller portion, to his least favorite. That's not at all the way it works. The Bible says we're not only heirs of God, we're joint heirs of Christ. Everything Jesus inherited is ours. Wow. So good, so good, so, when we value the presence, we will seek after the presence. Not only will we seek after the presence, not only will we want and 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 do whatever it takes to live in the presence of God in the sense of you know praying and worshiping and so on, but we'll also eliminate those things from our life that. Grieve the Lord. Ephesians 4.30, And grieve not the Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Grieve not the Spirit of God. One of the verses that we looked at, really the key verse in this series, is 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19. And it says, Quench not the Spirit. Or, as one translation says, Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Just think about that for a moment. We, finite, we, mortal human beings, puny humans, <laughs> we can put out the fire of God. Wow. Certainly it's not because we're more powerful than God. But it's because he is distributed to us the responsibility to steward his presence. We will not experience his presence if we don't want to. We will not experience his presence if we don't learn how to steward it. Most Christians in the modern day church live the majority of their life without learning how to abide in the presence. They experience it time on occasion. Maybe on a Sunday, which again most Christians don't even go to church anymore on Sunday. Or when they maybe pray on certain occasions. But they've not learned the secret of walking, living, abiding in the presence 24-7. You see, We use the terms, and I know it's cliche, but it's very powerful. We talk about visitation versus habitation. Hmm? I don't want a father that has just visitation rights. Would you, as a child growing up, would you, if you had a choice for your father to live with you or your father just to be able to visit you once in a while, what would you prefer? I mean, a good father. You want habitation. You want to live with your father. You don't want visitation. God's a good father. Good, good father. And He wants us to experience Him 24 7. One of the most amazing verses in the New Testament is Ephesians chapter two, verse twenty two. In that verse it says that we are being built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. The King James says habitation, the New King James says a dwelling place of God. The idea is this, a place of permanent residence. Not a place of occasional visitation. Not a meeting place, but a place of residence. A place of constant living together. That's what God has called us to. And we are not to do anything that would quench his spirit in any way. We have that responsibility. The Holy Spirit is likened to a dove. You know, a dove is gentle, right? A dove can be, can be easily scared off. A dove is Something that we will have to learn to be gentle with. And I'm, I know that, that God understands our weaknesses. And, and, and please don't over, uh, you know, take this to the extreme where, where you end up, well, you know what, if anything I do wrong at all, God's just finished with me. That's not at all what I'm saying. He's like, God's abandoned me. He's rejected me. No, 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 that's not at all. He's very patient. He's very long-suffering. But at the same time, he says, I want you to learn how to please me. You see, the very thing that Moses cried out to God about was, Lord, he said, teach me your ways that I may continue to find favor in your sight. And what was he saying? He was saying, show me how to walk and live in a place of constant abiding in your presence. Show me how to do this. Teach me. You know, I mean... It's so true. We, we, as Christians, we have these special times in our life. Maybe we go through a freedom encounter. I remember, you know, youth camps and you see kids, they get on fire for God and they encounter the Holy Spirit and something changes in their life. But then, unfortunately, in many instances, what ends up happening is we revert back to a lifestyle where the presence of God is not the norm. We get busy, we get focused on other things, we neglect communion with God, we neglect prayer and worship, we neglect coming into the house of God, and we take up some of our old habits that actually are things, patterns of thinking, you know, the words that we speak, all of these different things that can end up grieving the Holy Spirit, And when you read first, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter four, it's very clear what grieves the spirit when you read that passage. And so he's saying, look, there's things you have to put off and things you have to put on. Put off gossiping. Put on speaking the truth in love to one another. Put off criticism and, and, and backbiting and, and gossip and put on whatever edifies and imparts grace to hearers. He speaks all about this. He says, put off being lazy. Put on working with your hands. You know, put off bitterness and unforgiveness and put on love and and long-suffering and gentleness. And he's saying, this stuff is your old man. This stuff grieves the Spirit of God. This stuff is not able to coexist with the presence of a holy God. That stuff's got to stay outside. You can't bring it into the house. You've got to leave it outside. Well, this is what pleases God. This is what causes him to say, ah, I'm welcome. I can abide here. The door is open. I feel at home. I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay here. Don't you want that for your life? You know, there's a lot of things that we, we could talk about in terms of we could identify and we could, uh, you know, enumerate specific ways in which we grieve the Spirit. We could itemize our sins, right? Come on now. right? And the bottom line is all sin grieves the Spirit of God. That's why Jesus came to the cross. And our calling is to learn not just to live in a state where we uh, confess our sins, but we walk in the light. Walk in the light, right? We not only like we live in the darkness or no, that's not going to work. Or every once in a while I, I revert to the darkness. I go into the darkness and then I go, Oh God, I shouldn't have went into the darkness. Forgive me. And I step back into the light. No, I learn to live in the light. I don't go into the darkness. I don't go there at all. I live in the light and that, Uh, That light is to increase in my life. It's to grow. It's to intensify. The more I surrender myself, the more I learn to commune with God, the more I learn to depend upon Him and, and walk in a way that pleases Him, the brighter and more brilliant the light of His glory will become in my life. Hallelujah. All right. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to touch on three specific ways, and this is just very general, in which we can grieve the Spirit on the negative side, but then on the positive side, not only is there things we do that repel and grieve the Holy Spirit, but there's things that we can do that attract His presence, that attracts His presence. Now, this morning I want to talk about unity. Unity is key to experiencing the presence of God in our lives. There's so much we can say about this. Let's start off by looking at Psalm 133. A very short Psalm. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion For there the Lord what commands the blessing, life evermore. When you read that and it says God commands a blessing, guess what? If God commands a blessing, nothing can stop the blessing. No one can stop the blessing. But God doesn't just command a blessing uh, for everyone and at every time. There's certain prerequisite. There's certain conditions that have to be met. And when it's a body corporately, he says... Brothers and sisters, you have to live together, dwell together. The word means permanently, continually in unity, in that place of unity. In fact, do you know that unity is, first of all, spiritual? A lot of people think, like, well, unity is relational. It's communal, right? We—it's—it's it's social. We—we we just need to get along with each other and and try to love one another. But let me tell you something: there can be no unity without the Holy Spirit. Look, the unity that he's talking about here is a spiritual unity. People that don't know Jesus, that aren't born again, they don't have the Holy Spirit. They cannot experience it. We are so blessed. How do I know that? For the Bible tells me so. Are you ready? Ephesians 4 verse 3. Ephesians 4 verse 3. All right. Endeavor to keep the unity of what? The Spirit. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. All right. Listen to the Passion Translation. Be faithful to guard the sweet harmony of the Holy Spirit among you in the bonds of peace. Be faithful to guard the sweet harmony of the Holy Spirit among you in the bonds of peace. Guard it. Guard it. That's what the word keep means. It means to guard. It's actually a military word in the Greek language. It means to be intentional, to be vigilant. Don't allow the enemy to to breach. Don't allow the enemy to have his way. Guard him. Repel him. Keep him out. Block him. So he's not able to breach. Second Timothy 1 verse 6 tells us that just as we are capable of extinguishing the fire of the Spirit, there are also things that we can do. We can become... Spiritual accelerants. Spiritual accelerants that actually ignite and spread the fire of the Holy Spirit. So he says, I remind you to stir up the gift of God. One translation says, fan into flame the gift of God. That's our responsibility, to fan it into flame, to stir it up, to make sure that. Okay, now, one of the things that we need to understand about unity is that unity is spiritual, and the bible says this this is the key verse here first john chapter 1 verse 7 you can watch this if we walk in the light as he is in the light guess what happens if we walk in the light as he who's he god god lives in the light there's no darkness in him at all if we walk in the light as he is in the light then we have what fellowship, fellowship with what One another. Okay. But if you're walking in the light and I'm walking in the darkness, guess what? No fellowship. We both have to be walking in the light. So it's a, it's like this. You know, we use the, the analogy of a triangle. You know, God is at the top of the triangle. You're, you're here. I'm here at the bottom. And the more closer we go and, and ascend, to God, the closer we become to one another. That's the way it works. And, God's you know, saying, say, when you recognize that I've called you into unity with me, and the unity with me is what you are to pursue, and when you have unity with me, when you walk in the light, then it will also naturally cause you to have unity with your brothers and sisters. It's amazing how the presence of God can fix most problems. <laughs> isn't it it's like man you know what I think and I believe it's true I'm convinced it's true that many of the problems that we deal with as Christians rather than sending someone for 18 weeks of counseling we need to teach them how to get into the presence of God maybe two or three hours a day just get into the presence and seek God And I bet you a lot of the stuff would be sorted out in our lives if we did that so good I believe that Jesus is enough. Not Jesus in Freudian psychology, sorry. But Jesus. The Gadarian demoniac encountered Jesus once and everything changed in his life. Yeah. Well, I need Jesus and... You know, I, I've shared this story... I believe here, but there was a man that was in our church in Canada. He had been in prison for over 25 years. When he was a youth, he had something happen. He was attacked, and he was provoked. He had been abused all his life, and he just got angry. And when he was a youth, he actually took a shotgun and killed someone. So when he was 16, 17, they threw him in prison. He spent about 25 years in maximum security prison in Canada, a really nasty place. And what ended up happening is he met Jesus while he was in prison. Came out of prison, and we met him. He started attending our church. We had no idea. I had a television program that I was on, and and I brought him on, and I interviewed him, shared his testimony, how he came to know Jesus. And I had no idea, but he was living a double life. When he was in prison he was not involved in drinking or doing drugs but when he came out of prison after he had been saved after he had been delivered and even baptized with the holy spirit he met a he met a friend and his friend ended up getting him uh, on drugs introduced him to drugs so he got a he got a, he got, a, he, got a, he got became a cocaine addict and so here he was doing cocaine going to church trying to do well but kept reverting kept falling and then one morning I knew something was wrong I just knew in my spirit something's wrong something is is strange one morning my phone rang and I answered and it was his daughter and she said you've got to get to the hospital no she said something's wrong with my dad his whole one side of his body is paralyzed and he can't talk something's wrong So I said, call the ambulance, get him to the hospital, and I'll be there. So he went to the hospital and ended up finding out he took too much coke. He snorted too much coke. He had a cardiac arrest. It was like he had a a stroke almost, the conditions. While he was in the hospital, we were there, we were praying, he died. The family was beside themselves. Hysterical, to a brother, I'm sorry, son and a daughter, granddaughter, and the wife—and I'm standing there, and the Holy Spirit says to me, "Raise him from the dead." And I said, "Lord, all right." I told them, I said, "We're not stopping. We're not accepting this verdict." They came out. Look, guys, they came out, said he's dead. They had already tried to resuscitate him. He flatlined. They couldn't. He's dead. I said, we're going to pray. We're going to call on the name of Jesus, and we're going to command him to come back to life. We asked if we could go in, and they wouldn't let me. I said, well, it's okay. I don't have to can stay here in the waiting room so we stayed and we prayed and we commanded to come to life a few moments later noise commotion in the back he's breathing he came back to life ah, He's life they're freaked out and, well, he's going to have brain damage and heart, his heart's done. A couple of days later, they released him from the hospital with no brain damage. Oh, yeah. Nothing wrong with his heart. Oh, yeah. Now, he said, you've got to go into um, a detox place, okay? You've got to go in there and you've got to go to a, a, a rehab place, So he went into the detox place, and he was there for a few days, maybe a week. And he ended up, they let him out. And when he came out, he was totally delivered. He said, he said, actually, he said, I was totally delivered when I woke up. He said, because I no longer had any craving, any desire. And he said, so not only was I dead and raised and came back to life, not only was my brain healed. Not only was my heart healed, he said, but I was delivered from this addiction. One touch, one encounter with Jesus and everything changes. You see, that's all that we need. We need the presence of God. When he commands the blessing, that's all we need. You know, unity is such a powerful thing. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2 verse 1 that when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost... What an amazing move of God. Like, I mean, this blowing, mighty windstorm. that They hear the sound of it. And like this pillar of fire comes into the room, then separates, and then like flames begin to fall on each one of them. And while they're in this place, right, the Bible says that you know, when you recognize this principle, it wasn't just a case like God just said, "Okay, yeah, I'm in a good mood today, let's make this day the day of Pentecost." Now, first of all, we know it was on the calendar; it was a Hebrew festival. But there were some conditions that were uh, met by these uh, people of God. The Bible says that there were 120 of them. They continued steadfastly in prayer. They continued steadfastly. It means they were joined together. They were in one place. And they were doing one thing, one intention, one purpose, together in perfect unity. So in Acts 2.1 it says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Let's look at another example. 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 13 and 14. This is a story of when the temple was dedicated by Solomon. You remember what happened. The glory of God filled the place like a cloud so that the the, the ministers, the, the priests could not even minister in the house of God. It was so uh, amazing. So what happens, though, we look at this and we think, well, it's because they dedicate. No, listen to this. When did that happen? When did the glory show up in such power that they couldn't even enter the house of God to minister when did it happen look at verse 13 indeed it came to pass when the trumpeters and the singers were as one to make one sound to be heard praising and thanking the Lord and when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord saying for he is good his mercy endures forever that the house the house of the Lord was filled with the cloud And then it says that they could not even enter in to minister because the glory of the Lord filled the house. They were in one accord in one place. You know the interesting thing? There's 120 in the upper room, right? Do you know how many were here? 120. Which is the number of government and unity multiplied. So it's saying that They were 120 in both instances, in one accord, in one place. Several years ago, I was ministering in Seattle, Washington, at a conference, at a church. And um, one was, I'd been ministering for a few days. Sunday morning, we're worshiping the Lord. And I see this woman. I'm sitting in the front row with the pastor. And I I look back and I see a woman just kind of in that middle section there. And the Holy Spirit speaks to me and says, tell her one accord in one place. One accord in one place. So there was a point during the service where we were able to have a, a brief conversation. Perhaps it was even at the end of the service, I don't recall. And I looked at her and I said, I don't know who you are, and I don't know what this means to you, but I feel I have to be obedient to the Lord. I'm going to share this word with you. The Lord wants you to know that you're supposed to be in one accord and one place. She got very angry. I thought she was going to hit me. And then later on, she calmed down. She came to me, and she said, yeah, you're right. And I said, well, what does that mean to you, if you don't mind me asking? And she said, well, I'm the wife of the pastor. And uh, I actually, even though my husband and I were still married, we still lived together, I had a disagreement with him, and I took all the women out of the church and went down the road, and now I've started my own church. One accord in one place. No wonder she was angry. And I said, well, what do you think the Lord's trying to say to you? You rebellious wife. <laughs> uh, so they got back together. The church. They merged the two churches. I don't know if they stayed together. what? I did my job. John 17, 11 and 21. Let's close with this. I'll continue this because there's so much more. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you've sent me. I said this yesterday, John chapter 17 is the longest record we have of Jesus praying. Some commentators, some scholars actually believe that this is in part what Jesus was praying when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's three parts to his prayer. The first part is he's praying for himself. Then he prays for his disciples then. Then he prays for anyone and everyone who will come to believe in him and become his disciple in the future generations. That would include you. And he's praying that we would be one. But notice, he doesn't pray that we would be one together, one horizontally, but he prays for oneness vertically, one in us. Just as we are, May they be one. You, Father, are in me, and I in you that they may be one in us. The oneness is a oneness with God. In the 22nd verse of the same chapter, Jesus says, Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they might be one in us. Uniting us with the Father by the restoration of the glory so that we can become one, one with him. You see, when we're one with Him, a lot of things in life are going to work out. Because when we're one with Him, this speaks of covenant, this speaks of exchange. And what it's referring to is... His desires, all of a sudden, become our desires. His friends become our friends. His enemies become our enemies. His passions are our passions. The things that He hates, we end up now hating because we're one with Him. We think the way He thinks. Our heart beats for the things that His heart beats for. And we see what He sees. And out of that, we're in this place where we are one with him you know it's like a horse really this is probably the most accurate picture that i could give to you where he says in psalm 32 don't be like a horse that has to have a bit and a bridle and you know you have to just pull it and yank it and oh. be like a horse that you can ride bareback You know, in in North America, we have First Nations people, Aboriginal people, and they ride horses bareback. They don't need to put a bit or a bridle in the horse. They don't need a saddle. They just jump on the horse and they ride it, and the horse responds perfectly. God's saying, that's the kind of horse I want you to be. And the idea is the word that is translated meek, being meek, actually speaks of a horse that is so broken and submitted to its rider that it becomes like one. And that horse only does what its rider wants it to do. It can go into the midst of a battle or be a war horse. It's unaffected by all that's going on around it. It only responds to its rider. And so in the Greek language, there is a sense of defining the word meekness in the sense of becoming one. So that you're not resisting, you're not fighting, you don't have your own plan, desire, or will, but you're fully compliant, fully submitted. And that one of the greatest illustrations is of the horse. You see, this is what God is looking for. When I'm submitted to him, guess what? Those who love the Father love His children. And that's what it says in 1 John 5, verse 1. If you love the Father, you're going to love His kids. My paraphrase. So when I am fully submitted to Him, when I'm yielded to Him, and then you are, and my intention is just to do His will, to love Him, to please Him, and you are, then guess what? We can walk together as a force that be reckoned with; that the devil cannot stand. The devil, an old military tactic, it goes way back into the into the Greek days, even before the Romans, and we still use it today in, in modern warfare. Is the principle of divide and conquer. You study military strategic warfare, and and I've studied it. You could, you will see that this is actually a principle that was started way back even before um, Alexander the Great. And it's still used in modern warfare today through propaganda, dissemination of, of false stuff and, and so on. And the enemy tries to do that, right? Propaganda, lies, deception, right? Tries to divide, tries to divide. But what happens, guys? Here's the thing. You've got... Can I close with this one verse? Let me show you this, because I think this will really seal what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to share this morning. I'm going to let you get a coffee in just a moment. I want one. If you don't want one, I desperately do. Dale, you made a really good coffee yesterday. Thank you. <laughs> Actually, everybody did. Uh, okay. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. Let's close with this. Paul is dealing with a church that's divided. They're divided over a variety of things. Doctrine, they're fighting with each other. There's actually almost a celebrity cult. You know, I remember when we were part of a large church, when Lynn and I first got saved, we were part of this big church in Canada, and they had um, three pastors that they would rotate preaching because they did, um, I think it was three services, and they just rotated. And it's so funny because it would be, well, this pastor, they're all good, really good. But this pastor would get up and some would say, well, you know, uh, he's preaching. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, okay. Oh, this one. Oh, he's preaching. Oh, no. oh he's preaching. Okay. You see, um, the fact is, the anointing was there on every one of them. The, I mean, it wasn't just like one was anointed and one wasn't. Okay, I get that. I wouldn't want to sit under someone who's not anointed. But I'm saying they were all anointed. Style was different. People, we recognize that we are in a place, we're all different, but yet we're all equally valuable in the kingdom. Okay, look at this. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, and that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Wow. How do we do this? Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. That's how we do it. How can we be perfectly united in mind and thought? We all have to know the mind of God. We all have to know what God thinks about it, how God would respond to this. Revelation 19.10, the spirit of prophecy, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What does the word say? What does God say? What is the heart of the Father? God doesn't treat people dishonourably. God doesn't treat people disrespectfully. God loves everyone. If we have his heart, we will love everyone. Even in disagreements, even when we're dealing with difficult people, we still honor, we still love. It doesn't mean to say we can't we don't speak the truth. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying we do it with love. We speak the truth in love. That's what the Bible says. All right? So, when you don't understand something, when you have a disagreement, guess what? If two people are in in disagreement over something, it can mean that one is wrong, or one is right, or both are wrong. But you can't be both right. Now, the fact is, I said you're both wrong. One can be wrong, another can be right, or both can be wrong. But you can't both be right. Right? Now, the truth is, if you're in disagreement, the truth is God wants us to be united. And how do we do that? We get in the Spirit, we get in the Word, we grow in our understanding, and we become like Jesus in our heart, in our character, in our witness, and we understand the truth of His Word. Usually what happens, almost usually, almost always is when there's a disagreement, it's usually over someone having an opinion. Okay? Listen, some people treat their opinion as if it's the word of God. Some people treat the word of God as if it's only an opinion. But the wise man, the wise woman, has no opinions they value only what the word says. Can we stand together? I'm going to pray? Hallelujah. Do you love the Lord? Drive less, save more. Ride Coda with the Transit app. Download today for a four fifty credit. There's a new way to pay at Coda.